Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. Well, I don't normally do back-to-back lecture episodes, but as it is with life on Earth, these things happen. We had a rescheduling of a guest that was supposed to come on this week that some circumstances came up and they had to reschedule. So on the fly in an impromptu way, we are doing another lecture episode. We just did a lecture episode last week with Robert Anton Wilson, who is a very unique individual and it was an incredible lecture episode. But I usually like to follow lecture episodes with a guest episode. Just keep the knowledge flowing in that way. There's a certain rhythm. But, you know, sometimes rhythm just decides for itself what it is. So rhythm has decided that we're doing two lecture episodes back to back. And this week is a special one. They're always really special. The guests are incredible. The lectures are special. They're always rare and powerful and amazing. And this one is no different. This is going to be two lectures, actually, with the incredible Joseph Campbell. We were just talking about him a couple weeks ago with Wendy Weir, the sister of Grateful Dead member Bob Weir, and how she was his chaperone when he went to his one and only Grateful Dead concert. They knew that she didn't imbibe in some of the substances that others did. So as a group, as a family, they assigned her to look after Joseph Campbell as he was experiencing the Grateful Dead, the Grateful Dead experience. So what we're going to do this week is we're going to listen to two episodes of his very famous Power of Myth series with Bill Moyers. I guess this is popular or you know about this if you are a fan of Joseph Campbell and you've dove into his life or his works. I mean, he's the Einstein of mythology and spirituality. You listen to his lectures, his interviews, and it's just download after download. He's a very powerful human similar to Manly P. Hall, I often wonder if they crossed paths and what that interaction was like. I'm sure there's a story out there somewhere. So we're going to listen to these two parts, but for the next three lecture episodes, however they show up, however many guests are in between those episodes or beyond the news episodes, we're going to cover these Power of Myth episodes. There's six episodes. We can do two per episode. So for the next three lecture episodes, we'll be covering Joseph Campbell and his Power of Myth series with Bill Moyers. And as usual, 
on these lecture episodes, when we do these type of episodes, I have a guest co-host. She's been with me as my guest co-host this entire time. She was the first one and so far the only one. She's been the best one. She's here with me, Bryn Anderson of Vinyl Force Herbs. Hello, Bryn. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for being back this week. You were here last week. You're back again this week. We had a little bit of rescheduling. So you were available on the fly. I deeply appreciate that. Thank you for being here. I was. I had some rescheduling myself, so it all worked out. Yay. So we're here. We're going to listen to a lecture, actually an interview, two interviews with Joseph Campbell. How do you feel about this? Pretty exciting, right? I feel pretty great about it. Yeah, definitely. I remember we did a Joseph Campbell lecture episode, but it was far back. It was like 30 or 40 episodes ago. It was a minute ago. Yeah. And it was great then, but this is going to be also amazing. As we learn from Joseph Campbell through the time stream, Bill Moyers is going to help us out. He's going to be doing my job as if I was interviewing Joseph Campbell. I would be Bill Moyers if Joseph Campbell had not left this dimension already, but he graduated. So Bill Moyers gets to be the interviewer on this episode of Midnight on Earth. Right. Yeah, these are going to be good. These are such classic interviews. It's just good information. I always want Midnight on Earth, the podcast, to be a repository of good information. I just want people to be able to come here from all over the world, the 145 countries now that we're up to. I want them to know that when they come here, they're going to get great information, whether it's rare lectures that contain great information or new interviews that contain great information or those beyond the news episodes where we find really weird news stories. If you haven't checked any of those out yet, definitely check those out. Those are also good information in their own funny, weird way. It's just quirky earth-based data that just is kind of like good in its own, in its own strange way. So before we start this first of three lecture episodes, that contain two episodes of this Joseph Campbell series. Before we do that, I need you to do something for me. Go to bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And there you will find Blue Cobra CBD oil, the highest quality CBD oil on the planet, period. And the reason that that is, is because the CBD, the way it is extracted from the hemp is a proprietary process. It's called the HIT extraction method. It was developed by a man named Howard HIT, AKA Big H, and it uses no chemicals, no solvents, no gases, nothing unnatural was used in extracting that CBD from the hemp and no other CBD product producer can make that claim. They all have some chemistry going on behind the scenes. In some cases, it's very bad. There are three different styles. There is the King Cobra maximum strength, the regular strength, little King Cobra and wild thing CBD for pets. It's the highest quality pet medicine. 
And I just visited Howard's facility where he creates his proprietary products. And there's always tinkering happening. There's always some new method that he's dialing in in order to make it even better each time. And that hemp, I just want to add, is 100% organic Oregon grown hemp. So everything about it's organic and we have an organic discount code that gets you free shipping on any order. That is big H it's B I G the letter H that gets you free shipping on any order in the continental 48 United States, Hawaii, Virgin islands. I'm sorry. You don't get the shipping, but you can still order the product And Howard's available if you want to contact him with any questions. He's available on his website. There's also a money-back guarantee. If you don't like the product, you get to keep the product. If you had to pay shipping, you get your shipping money back. You get your money back. It's a win-win situation. There's nothing to lose here. Try this out. I absolutely love this. And I will tell you again, just like I tell you every week, there is no other CBD product like this. On the planet, there's nothing else that can even compare. When I take this stuff, it's it's an experience, even though there's no THC in it. So everyone, please go check it out. Tell me what you think. Send me an email. BlueCobraCBD.com. That is BlueCobraCBD.com. And when you're done with that, follow me on Instagram at Midnight underscore on underscore earth. That's the address. You can follow me there. The more people that discover this, the more people that find this information, it's just going to help them grow. It helps the guests. It's not about me. It's about the guests. Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcast, click that button that connects us. So many of you have. And so many of you may still have it. So if you do click that button that connects us, so you know everything that's going on. And most importantly, tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts. Word of mouth is so huge in any situation. It's how people find things out. They love recommendations from their friends and family. That's your job for me. Do that for me. Midnight on Earth. Dot. Okay, so we're going to get to this two-part lecture, this two-part interview, but just as if Joseph Campbell was alive, just like he was here as a guest, because he is, in his own ethereal way. We read his bio. So here we go. Joseph John Campbell, born 1904, graduated 1987, was an American professor of literature at Sarah Lawrence College who worked in comparative mythology and comparative religion. His work covers many aspects of the human experience. Campbell's best known work is his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, in which he discusses his theory of the journey of the archetypal hero shared by world mythologies, termed the monomyth. Since the publication of The Hero with a Thousand Faces, 
Campbell's theories have been applied by a wide variety of modern writers and artists. His philosophy has been summarized by his own often repeated phrase, follow your bliss. He gained recognition in Hollywood when George Lucas credited Campbell's work as influencing his Star Wars saga and more. Yes, he did have some input on designing that. And Wendy Weir shared a story about how that Grateful Dead concert was right after a private screening of the three Star Wars movies with George Lucas. He did that, and then he went to that concert where Wendy was the chaperone. Incredible information. Bryn, are you ready to listen to this classic interview? Maybe you already listened to it. We're going to listen to it again. Are you ready? I'm ready. Super ready. So I don't know people exactly when this is from, like a year. Definitely later in Joseph Campbell's life. Visually, he looks older. But the information is timeless. So as all of our lecture episodes are set up, Brendan and I are listening. We're taking notes. And after it's all done, we'll recap. We'll go back. We'll talk about some of the things that he said, what we wrote down, the notes that we took as we close out the episode. So stick around with us till the end and we'll all recap together. Bryn, myself, you, JC, no, not Jesus Christ, Joseph Campbell. So here we go. This is <laughs> Joseph Campbell and the power of myth. With Bill Moyers, episodes one and two. Joseph Campbell on the hero's adventure. He was the teacher everyone would like to have. He was the archetype, to use one of his favorite words, the original, the ideal. One of his students at Sarah Lawrence College, where Campbell taught for almost 40 years, described him as a beaming flashlight into the darkness. The director, George Lucas, said of Campbell, if it hadn't been for him, it's possible I would still be trying to write Star Wars. When I met him late in his life, college students across the country had been reading Campbell's influential book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, for years. Scholars poured over his four-volume study of mythology, The Mask of God. Now he was working on a monumental historical atlas of world mythology. Yet beyond the classroom and lecture halls, only a relative handful of people had ever seen Joseph Campbell in person or heard him speak. That changed with our series. As the broadcast played out over six consecutive weeks, the accumulating insight and wisdom had an enormous unexpected impact. Thousands of letters poured into public television stations around the country. One that I received soon after the first broadcast from a woman in Kew Gardens, New York, summed up the collective reaction. She said, I will never be the same. The series has been repeated over the years, and people continue to stop me in public to say simply, Joseph Campbell changed my life. I say to all of them, yes, he was a great teacher. But exactly how and why he touched so many different lives, I can't say. But I can say this. At a time when millions of people were yearning for a way of talking about religious experience without regard to a rigid belief system, Campbell gave them the language for it. He said myths were clues to our spiritual nature and they could help 
guide us to a sacred place within where we might unlock the creative power of our deeper unconscious self. And then there was the brilliant clarity he brought to the great and enduring theme of mythology across the ages, the hero's adventure. He tracked that theme in the symbols, stories, and rituals that keep appearing in different cultures, coming alive in literature, art, and religion, and today in movies, comic books, and yes, video games. Campbell believed the most heroic of all acts is the courage to discover who you are and what you would like to be, to slay the savage dragon of the ego, and to follow your bliss to the truth of your life. We taped these conversations at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch in California over the last two summers of Campbell's life. Naturally, we began with his favorite subject, the hero with a thousand faces. Why the hero with a thousand faces? Well, because there is a certain typical hero sequence of actions, um, which can be detected in stories from all over the world and from many, many periods of history. And uh, I think it's uh, essentially, you might say, the one deed done by many, many different people. Why are there so many stories of the hero or of heroes in mythology? Well, because that's what's worth writing about. I mean, even in, in uh, popular novel writing, you see, these, the main character is a hero or a heroine. That is to say, someone who has found or achieved or done something beyond the normal range of uh, achievement and experience. A hero properly is someone who has given his life to something bigger than himself or other than himself. So in all of these cultures, whatever the costume the hero might be wearing, what is the deed? Well, there are two types of deed. One is the physical deed, the hero who has performed a a war act or a physical act of heroism, saving a life, that's a hero act. Uh, giving himself, sacrificing himself uh, to another. And the other kind is the uh, spiritual hero who has uh, learned or found a, uh, a mode of um, experiencing the uh, supernormal range of human uh, spiritual life and then come back and communicated it. It's a cycle. It's a going and a return that the hero cycle represents. But then this can be seen also in the simple initiation ritual, where a child has to give up his childhood and become an adult, has to die, you might say, to its infantile personality and psyche and come back as a self-responsible adult. It's a fundamental experience that everyone has to undergo. We're in our childhood for at least 14 years, and then to get out of that posture of dependency, psychological dependency, into one of psychological self-responsibility requires a death and resurrection. And that is the basic motif of the hero journey, leaving one condition, finding the source of life to bring you forth in a... Uh, richer or more mature or other conditions. 
so that if we happen not to be heroes in the grand sense of redeeming society, we have to take that journey ourselves, spiritually, psychologically, inside us. That's right. And uh, Otto Rank, in his wonderful, very short book, uh, called The Myth of the Birth of the Hero. He says that everyone is a, a hero in his birth. He has undergone a tremendous transformation from a little, uh, you might say, water creature living in a realm of the amniotic fluid and so forth, and then coming out, becoming an air-breathing mammal that ultimately will be self-standing and so forth. This enormous transformation, and it is a heroic act, and it's a heroic act on the mother's part to bring it about. That's the primary hero hero form, you might say. Still a journey to be taken after that. There's a big one to be taken. And that journey is not consciously undertaken. Do heroes go out on their own initiative? Well, they're both kinds. A very common one that appears in Celtic myths of someone who has followed the lure of a deer or animal that uh, he has been following and then carries him into a range of forest and landscape that he's never been in before. And then the the animal will undergo a transformation and become the queen of the fairy hills or something like that. That is one of not knowing what you're doing. You suddenly find yourself in full career of an adventure. There's another one where one sets out responsibly and uh, intentionally to perform the deed. For instance, when Ulysses' son, Telemachus, was called by Athene, go find your father. That father quest is a major hero uh, adventure for young people. That is uh, the adventure of finding what your career is, what your nature is, what your source is. Um, He undertakes that intentionally. Then there's one into which you are thrown and pitched, for instance, being drafted into the army. You didn't intend it, they are in. Hey! You're in another transformation. You've undergone a death and resurrection. You put on a uniform. You're another creature. So does the heroism have a moral objective? The moral objective is that of saving a people or saving a person or saving an idea. He is sacrificing himself for something. That's the morality of it. Now, you, from another position, might say that something was something that should not have been realized, you know. That's a judgment from another side. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't destroy the heroism of what was done. Absolutely not. Well, that's a different uh, angle on heroes than I got when I was reading, as as a young boy, the story of Prometheus going after the fire and bringing it back and benefiting humanity and suffering for it. I mean, Prometheus brings fire to mankind and consequently civilization. That's, by the way, a a universal theme. What is? The hero, the the fire fire theft theme with a, usually with a relay race after it. Often it's a blue jay or a woodpecker or something like this that uh, steals the fire and then passes it on to something else and something else, one animal after another. And they're burned by the fires as they're carrying it on. That accounts for the different colorings of animals and so forth. Um, It's a, it's a, uh, a worldwide myth, the fire theft. Do these stories of the hero uh, vary from culture to culture? 
Well, it's the degree of the illumination that uh, or action that makes him different. There is a typical early culture hero who goes around slaying monsters. Now that is uh, in the period of history when man is shaping his world out of a wild, savage, unshaped world. Well, it has another shape, but it's not the shape for man. He goes around killing monsters. So the hero evolves over time, like most other concepts and ideas. And well, he, he evolves as the culture evolves. Yeah. <clears throat> now, uh, Moses is a, is a hero figure. In his uh, ascent of the mountain, is meeting with Yahweh on the summit of the mountain and coming back with the rules for the formation of a whole new society. That's the hero act. Departure, fulfillment, return. And uh, on the way, there are adventures that uh, can be paralleled also in other traditions. Now, the Buddha figure, it's like that of the Christ. Of course, 500 years earlier, you could match those two traditions right down the line, even to the characters of their apostles or their monks. Christ. Uh, now, there's a, a perfectly good hero deed formula represented there. And he undergoes three temptations. The economic temptation, where the devil says, you look hungry, young man, change the stones to bread. Jesus said, man lives not by bread alone, but every word from the mouth of God. Next, we have the political temptation. He's taken to the top of a mountain and shown the nations of the world and says, you can come into control of all these if you'll bow to me. And then, now you're so spiritual. Let's go up to the top of Herod's temple and see you cast yourself down and the God will bear you up and you won't even bruise your heel. So he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Uh, those are the three temptations of, of Christ uh, in the desert. The Buddha also goes into the forest, has conferences with the leading gurus of the day and goes past them comes to the bow tree, the tree of illumination, undergoes three temptations. They're not the same temptations, but they are three temptations. And one is that of lust, another is that of fear, and another is that of social duty, doing what you're told. And then both of these men come back and they choose disciples who help them establish a new way of consciousness in terms of what they have discovered there. The, these are the same hero deeds. These are the spiritual hero deeds. Moses, the Buddha, Christ, Muhammad. Muhammad literally, and we know this about him. He was a camel caravan master, but he would leave his uh, home and go out into a little mountain cave that he found and meditate and meditate and meditate and meditate. And one day a voice says, write, and we have the Koran, you know? It's an old story. Sometimes it seems to me that, that we ought to feel pity for the hero instead of admiration. Uh, so many of them have sacrificed their own needs. They all have. And very often what they, what they accomplish is shattered by the 
inability of the followers to see. Yeah, you come out of the forest with gold and it turns to ashes. That's another motif that occurs. In this culture of easy religion, cheaply achieved, it seems to me we've forgotten that all three of the great religions teach that the trials of the hero journey are a significant part of it, that there's no reward without renunciation and without a price. The Quran speaks, do you think that you shall enter the garden of bliss without such trials as come to those who passed before you? Well, it's if you realize what the real problem is, and that is of losing uh, primary, think, primarily thinking about yourself and your own self-protection, losing yourself, giving yourself to another. That's... That's what a trial in itself, is it not? Mm -hmm. There's a big transformation of consciousness that's concerned. And what all the myths have to deal with is transformation of consciousness. That uh, you're thinking in this way, and you have now to think in that way. Well, how is the consciousness transformed? By the trials. The test that the hero undergoes. or certain illuminating revelations. Trials and revelations are what it's all about. Well, who in society today is making any heroic myth at all for us? Do movies do this? Do movies create hero myths? I don't myths? know. Uh, now my experience of movies, I mean, the significant experience I had of movies was when I was a boy, and they were all really movies. They weren't talkies. They were black and white movies. And uh, I had a, a hero figure who uh, meant something to me, and he served as a kind of model for myself in my, uh, in my physical character, and that was Douglas Fairbanks. I wanted to be a synthesis of Douglas Fairbanks and Leonardo da Vinci, that was my <laughs> idea. But those were models, were roles that came to me. Does a movie like Star Wars fill some of that need for the spiritual adventure, for the hero? Oh, it's perfect. It does the, the cycle perfectly. It's not simple morality play. It has to do with the powers of life and their inflection through the action of man. One of the wonderful things, I think, about uh, this uh, adventure into space is that the narrator, the uh, artist, the one thinking up the story, is in a field that is not covered by our own knowledges, you know? There was much of the adventure in the old stories is where they go into regions that no one's been in before. Well, we've now conquered the planet, so there are no empty spaces for the imagination to go forth and fight its own uh, war, you know, with uh, powers. And uh, that was the first thing I, I felt there. There's a, a whole new realm for the imagination to open out and live its forms. Do you, when you look at something like Star Wars, recognize some of the themes of the hero throughout mythology? Well, I think that George uh, Lucas was using standard mythological figures. The old man as the advisor, well, specifically, what he made me think of is the uh, Japanese sword master. Remember, a Jedi can feel the force flowing through him. I've known some of those people, and um, this man has a bit there, their character. 
Well, there's something mythological too, isn't there, in the sense that the hero is helped by this stranger who shows up and gives him some instrument, a sword or a sheaf of yeah, light, shaft of he light. He gives him not only a, a physical instrument, but a psychological yeah, commitment him. and a psychological center. This time, let go your conscious self and act on instinct. Well, he had him exercising with that strange weapon and then pulled the mask over. That's real Japanese stuff. I'll take them myself. When I took our two sons to see it, they did the same thing the audience did at that moment when the voice of Ben Kenobi says to Luke Skywalker in the climactic moment, Use the force, Luke. Let go, Luke. The audience broke out into they did. elation and to applause. Well, you see, this thing communicates. It is in a language that is talking to young people today, and that's, that's marvelous. So the hero goes for something. He doesn't just go along for the ride. He's not a mere adventurer. Well, a serendipitous adventure can take place also. Um, you know what the word serendipity comes from? It comes from the Sanskrit, serendipa, the Isle of Silk, which was a former, the, formerly the name of Ceylon. And it's a story about a family that's just rambling on its way to Ceylon and all these adventures take place. Uh, so you can have the serendipitous adventure as well is the adventurer who takes that kind of uh, trip a hero in the yeah, mythological He sense? is ready for it. This is a, a, a very interesting thing about these uh, mythological themes. The, <clears throat> the achievement of the hero is one that he is ready for, and it's really a manifestation of his character. And it's amusing the way in which the landscape and the conditions of the environment match the readiness of the hero. The adventure that he's ready for is the one that he gets. Look, I ain't in this for your revolution, and I'm not in it for you, princess. I expect to be well paid. I'm the mercenary solo begins as a, as a mercenary and ends up as a hero. He was a, a very practical guy, a, uh, a materialist in his character, at least as he thought of himself. But he was a, a compassionate human being at the same time and didn't know it. The adventure evoked a quality of his character that uh, he hadn't known he possessed. I love you. He thinks he's an egoist, he really isn't. And uh, that's a very lovable kind of human being, I think, and there are uh, lots of them functioning beautifully in the world. They think they're working for themselves, very practical and all, but no, there's something else pushing them. What did you think about the scene in the bar? That's my favorite, not only in this piece, but of many, many pieces I've ever seen. <laughs> well, where you are is on the edge. You're about to embark into the outlying spaces. And a uh, real adventure. A real adventure. This is the, the jumping off place. 
And there is where you meet people who've been out there and they run the machines that go out there and you haven't been there. It reminds me a little bit in um, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, the atmosphere before you start off the adventure. You're in a seaport and there is old salt seamen who've been on the sea and they, that's their world and these are the space people also. Bad feeling about this. The walls are moving. Don't just stand there. Try and brace it with something. But my favorite scene was when they were in the garbage compactor and the walls were closing in, and I thought that's like the belly of the whale that Joe. That's Campbell. what it is. Yeah, that's where they were. Yeah, down in the belly of the whale. What's the mythological significance of the belly? It's the descent into the dark. Jonah in the whale. I mean, that's, that's a standard motif of going into the whale's belly and coming out again. Why must the hero do that? The whale represents the uh, personification, you might say, of all that is in the unconscious. Like in reading these things psychologically, water is the unconscious. The creature in the water would be the dynamism of the unconscious, which is, is dangerous and powerful and has to be uh, controlled by consciousness. The first stage in the uh, hero adventure, when he starts off on adventure, is leaving the realm of light, which he controls and knows about, and moving toward the, uh, the threshold. And it's at the threshold that the monster of the abyss comes to meet him. And then there are two or three results. One, the hero is cut to pieces and descends into the abyss in fragments to be resurrected, or he may kill the dragon power, as Siegfried does when he kills the dragon, but then he tastes the dragon blood. That's say he has to assimilate that power. And when Siegfried has killed the dragon and tasted the blood, he hears the song of nature. He has transcended his humanity, you know, and re-associated uh, uh, himself with the powers of nature, which are the powers of our, of our life, from which our mind removes us. You see, this thing up here, this consciousness thinks it's running the shop. It's a secondary organ. It's a secondary organ of a, of a total human being, and it must not put itself in control. It must submit and serve the humanity of the body. Join me, and I will complete your training. When it does put itself in control, you get this father, the man who's gone over to the intellectual side. I'll never join you! If you only knew the power of the dark side. He isn't thinking in, in, or living in terms of humanity, he's living in terms of a system. And this is the threat to our lives. We all face it. We all operate in our society in relation to a system. Now, is the system going to eat you up and re relieve you of your humanity? Or are you going to be able to use the system to human purposes. Would the hero with a thousand faces help us to answer that question about how to change the system so that we 
are not serving it. I don't think it would help you to change the system, but it would help you to live in the system as a human being. By doing what? Well, like Luke Skywalker, not going over, but resisting its, its uh, impersonal claims. But I can hear someone out there in the audience saying, well, that's all well and good for the imagination of a George Lucas or for the scholarship of a Joseph Campbell, mm -hmm. but that doesn't, isn't what happens in my life. You bet it does. If the person doesn't listen to the demands of his own spiritual and, and heart life and uh, insists on a certain program, you're going to have a schizophrenic crack up. The person has put himself off center. He has aligned himself with a programmatic life and it's not the one the body's uh, interested in at all. And the world's full of people who have, uh, who have stopped listening to themselves. In, in my own life, I've had many opportunities to commit myself to a system and to go with it and to obey its uh, requirements. My life has been that of a maverick. Uh, I would not submit. You really believe that the creative spirit ranges on its own out there beyond the boundaries? Yeah, I do. Something of the hero in that. I don't mean to suggest that you see yourself as a hero. No, I don't, but I see myself as a maverick. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps the hero lurks in each one of us when we don't know it. Well, yes. I mean, our life evokes our character, and you find out more about yourself as you go on. And it's very nice to be able to put yourself in situations that will evoke your higher nature rather than your lower. Give me an example. I'll give you a story. I'm dealing with an, an Iroquois story right now. There's a motif that comes in American Indian uh, stories very often, what I call the refusal of suitors. A girl with her mother lived in a wigwam on the edge of the village. She was a very handsome girl, but extremely proud and uh, would not accept any of the boys. They proposed to her through the mother and the mother was terribly annoyed with her. Well, one day they're out collecting wood and they have gone a long way from the village. And while they are collecting the wood, a terrific darkness comes over them. Now this wasn't the darkness of night descending. When you have a darkness like that, there's some magician at work somewhere. So uh, the mother says, uh, well, let's uh, gather some bark and make a little wigwam, a bark wigwam for ourselves, and uh, collect wood for a fire, and we'll just spend the night here. So they do that, and the mother falls asleep. And the girl looks, and there's this magnificent guy standing there with a wampum sash, glorious and feathers and all this kind of black feathers. He says, I've come to marry you, and I'll await your reply. She accepts the guy, and the mother accepts the man. And he gives the mother the wampum belt to prove that uh, he's serious about all this. So he goes away with the girl. She has acquiesced. Mere human beings weren't good enough for her, but here's something that really, ah, so she's in another domain. Now the adventure is marvelous. She goes uh, with him to his village, and they enter his uh, lodge. The people in there greet her, and she feels very comfortable about it and all. 
And then the next day he says, I'm going off to hunt. So he leaves the lodge and the door is closed with a flap. There's a flap. When he closes the flap, she hears a strange sound. So the, there's the whole day and she's just in the hut. And as evening comes, she hears that strange sound again. And the door flap is flung off, and in comes this prodigious serpent with his tongue darting. And he puts his head in her lap and says, now you must search my head for lice and things like that. And she finds all kinds of horrible things there and kills them all. And then he withdraws, and in a moment, after the gate door has been closed, it opens again, and in he comes it's the same beautiful young man again and said, uh, were you afraid of me when I came in just now? No, she said, she wasn't at all afraid. Next day he goes off to hunt. And then she leaves the lodge to gather wood. And the first thing she sees is an enormous serpent basking on the rocks. And then another, and then another. Then she begins to feel very badly, very homesick and discouraged. Then the evening, the serpent, and then the man again. The third day, when he leaves, she decides she's going to try to get out of this place. So she goes out, and she's standing in the woods thinking, and a voice speaks to her, and she turns, and there's a little old man there. And he says, darling, you are in trouble. The man that you've married is one of seven brothers. They are great magicians. And uh, like many people of this kind, their hearts are not in their bodies. There is a collection of seven hearts in a bag that is hidden under the bed of the eldest to whom you are married. You must go get that, and then we'll deal with the next part of the adventure. She goes in and finds a bag of hearts and is running out and a voice calls after her, stop, stop, it's the voice of the magician. And she continues to run. He says, you may think you can get away from me, but you never can. And just at that point, she hears the voice of the old man. He says, I'll help you, dear. And he's pulling her out of the water. She didn't even know that she was in water. What does that say to you? That's to say you have moved out of the hard land, the solid earth, and are in the field of the unconscious. And she had pulled herself into the uh, transcendent realm and got caught in the negative powers of the abyss, and she's being rescued now by the upper powers. What you have done has been to elevate yourself out of the local field and put yourself in a field of higher power, higher danger, and uh, are you going to be able to handle it? If you are not eligible for this place into which you put yourself, it's going to be a demon marriage. It's going to be a real mess. Uh, If you are eligible, it can be a glory that will uh, give you a life that is, is yours in your own way. So these stories of mythology are simply trying to express a truth that can't be grasped any other way. It's the edge, the interface between what can be known and what is never to be discovered because it is a mystery transcendent of all human research, the source of life. What, what is it? No one knows. 
Why are stories important for getting at that? Well, I think it's, it's important to live life with a knowledge of its mystery and of your own mystery. And it gives life a, a new zest, a new balance, a new harmony to do this. I mean, therapy and psychological therapy, when people find out what it is that's ticking in them, they get straightened out. And uh, what is it that life is? I find thinking in mythological terms uh, has helped people uh, visibly, you can see it happen. How? What does it do? It, it uh, erases anxieties. It puts them in accord with the inevitables of their life. Uh, and, and they can see the, uh, the positive values of what are the negative aspects of what is positive. It's, uh, it's, it's whether you're going to say no to the serpent or yes to the serpent, as easy as that. No to the adventure? Yeah, the adventure of being alive, of living. When I was growing up, tales of King Arthur, tales of the medieval knights, tales of the dragon slayers were very strong in my world. Dragons represent greed, really. The European dragon guards things in his cave, and what he guards are heaps of gold and virgins. And he can't make use of either of them, but he just guards. There's no vitality of experience, either of the value of the gold or of the female whom he's guarding there. Psychologically, the dragon is one's own binding of oneself to one's ego, and you're captured in your own dragon cage. And uh, the problem of the psychiatrist is to break that dragon, open him up, so that you can have a larger field of uh, relationships. Jung had a patient come to him who felt alone, and she drew a picture of herself as uh, caught in the rocks. From the waist down, she was bound in rocks. And this was on a windy shore, and the wind blowing, and her hair blowing, and all the gold, which is the sign of the vitality of life, was locked in the rocks. And the next picture that he had her draw had followed something he had said to her. Suddenly, uh, a lightning flash hit the rocks, and the gold came pouring out. And then she found reflected on rocks round about the gold. And there was no more gold in the rocks. It was all available on the top. And in the conferences that followed, those patches of gold were identified. They were her friends. She wasn't alone, but she had locked herself in her own little room and life, but she had friends. Do, do you see what I'm meaning? This is killing the dragon. And uh, you have fears and things. Uh, this is the dragon. That's exactly what that's all about. At least the European dragon. Chinese dragon is different. What is it? It represents the vitality of the swamps, and the dragon comes out beating his belly and saying, ha, 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 ha.
you know? That's another kind of dragon. And uh, he's the one that yields the bounty and the waters and all that kind of thing. He's the great, glorious thing. But this is the negative one that cuts you down. So what you're saying is if there are not dragons out there, and there may not the, be any... The real long, dragon is in you. And what is that real dragon? That's your ego holding you in. What's my ego? What I want, what I believe, what I can do, what I think I love, and all that. What I regard as the aim of my life and so forth. It might be too small. It might be that which pins you down. And if it's simply that of doing what the environment tells you to do, it certainly is pinning you down. And so the environment is your dragon as it reflects within yourself. How do I slay? How do you? Slay that dragon in me. What's the journey I have to make? You have to make. Each of us has to make. You talk about something called the soul's high adventure. My general formula for my students is Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Can my bliss be my life's well, love or my it life's will be work? Your is life. it my work or my life? Well, if the work that you're doing is the work that you chose to do because you are enjoying it, that's it. But if you think, oh, gee, I couldn't do that, you know, that's your dragon that's locking you in. Oh, no, I couldn't be a writer. Oh, no, I couldn't do what so-and-so is doing. Unlike the classical heroes, we're not going on our journey to save the world, but to save ourselves. And in doing that, you save the world. I mean, you do. The influence of a vital person vitalizes. There's no doubt about it. The world is a wasteland. People have the notion of saving the world by shifting it around and changing the rules and so forth. And no, any world is a living world if it's alive. And the thing is to bring it to life. And the way to bring it to life is to find in your own case where your life is and be alive yourself, it seems to me. That's the power of the teacher, isn't it? To, to bring vitality to others, to make others see the vitality in them, children. Well, it happens. That's one of the delights of teaching. I mean, when you're not teaching in order to have an easy job, but because you, you really have something to teach and you love young people and you want to give what you've got found to them. And to see them come alive is, is the reward of teaching. Do you say I have to take that journey and go down there and slay those dragons? Do I have to go alone? If you have someone who can help you, that's fine too. But uh, ultimately, the, the last trick has to be done by you. In all of these, journeys of mythology, there's a place everyone wishes to find. What is it? The Buddhists talk of nirvana. Jesus talks of peace. There's a place of rest and repose. Is that typical of the hero's journey? That there's a place to find? That's a place in yourself of rest. Now this I, I know a little bit about from athletics. The athlete who is uh, in championship form has a quiet place in himself. And uh, it's out of that that his action comes. If he's all in the action field, uh, he's not performing properly. There's a center out of which you act. 
And Jean, my wife, a dancer, tells me that in dance, this is true too. There's the center that has to be known and held. There, it's quite physically recognized by the person. But uh, unless this center has been found, you're torn apart, tension comes. Now, the Buddha's word is nirvana. Nirvana is a psychological state of mind. It's not a place like heaven. It's not something that's not here. It is here in the middle of the turmoil, what's called samsara, the whirlpool of life conditions. The, that nirvana is what? It is the condition that comes when you are not compelled by desire or by fear or by social uh, commitments. When you hold your center and act out of there. And like all heroes, the Buddha doesn't show you the truth, the illumination. He shows you the way to. The way. But it's got to be your way too. I mean, how should I get rid of fear? The Buddha can't tell me how I'm going to do it. There are exercises that uh, different teachers will give you, but they may not work for you. Um, and uh, all a teacher can do is give you a clue of the direction. He's like a lighthouse that says there are rocks over here and steer clear. You talk a lot about consciousness. Yes. Most people hear that term and, like me, have only a veiled understanding of it. What is it? Gene and I are, are, are living in Hawaii, and uh, we're living right by the ocean, and we have a little lanai, a little porch, and uh, there's a coconut tree that grows up through that porch, and it goes on up. And uh, there's a, a, a kind of vine plant, a big powerful thing with leaves like this, that has grown up the coconut tree. Now that plant sends forth little uh, feelers to go out and, and clutch the plant, and it, it knows where the plant is and what to do, and where the tree is, and it, it grows up like this, and it opens a leaf, and that leaf immediately turns to where the sun is. Now you can't tell me that leaf doesn't know where the sun is going to be. All of the leaves go just like that, what's called heliotropism, turning toward where the sun is. That's a form of consciousness. There is a, a plant consciousness. There is a animal consciousness. And we share all of these things. You eat certain foods and the bile knows whether there's something there for it to go to work on. I mean, this whole thing is consciousness. I begin to feel more and more that the whole world is conscious. Uh, certainly the vegetable world is conscious. And when you live in the woods, as I did as a kid, you can see all these uh, different consciousnesses relating to themselves. Now, it is a part of the sort of um, Cartesian uh, mode to think of consciousness as being something peculiar to the head, that this is the organ originating consciousness. It isn't. It's an organ that inflects consciousness to a certain direction, a certain set of purposes. But there's a whole consciousness here in the body. And uh, the whole living world is informed by consciousness. I have a feeling that uh, consciousness and energy are the same thing somehow. Where you really see energy, there is consciousness. 
Scientists are beginning to talk quite openly about the Gaia principle. There you are, the whole planet as an organism. Mother Earth. And you see, if you will think of ourselves as coming out of the Earth, rather than as being thrown in here from somewhere else, you know, thrown out of the Earth, we are the Earth. We are the consciousness of the Earth. These are the eyes of the Earth. And this is the voice of the Earth. What else? How do we raise our consciousness? Well, that's a matter of what you are disposed to think about. And uh, that's what meditations are for. And all of life is a meditation, most of it unintentional. A lot of people spend most of it in meditating on where their money's coming from and where it's going to go, but that's a level of meditation. Or if you have a family to bring up, you're, you're concerned for the family. Uh, these are all perfectly uh, imp very important concerns, but they have to do with, with physical conditions mostly and spiritual conditions of the children, of course. But how are you going to communicate spiritual consciousness to the children if you don't have it yourself? So how do you get that? Then you think about the myths. What the myths are for is to bring us into a, uh, a level of consciousness that is spiritual. Just for example, I walk off 52nd Street and 5th Avenue into St. Patrick's Cathedral. I've left a very busy city and uh, the, one of the most uh, fiercely economically inspired cities on the planet. I walk into that cathedral and everything around me speaks of spiritual mystery. The mystery of the cross, what's that all about there? The stained glass windows which bring another atmosphere in. My consciousness has been brought up onto another level altogether. And I am on a different platform. And uh, then I walk out and I'm back in this one again. Now can I hold something from that? Well, certain prayers or meditations that are associated with the whole context there. Uh, these are what are called mantras in India, uh, little meditation themes that hold your consciousness on that level instead of letting it drop down here all the way. And then what you can finally do is recognize that this is simply a lower level of that. The cathedral at Chartres, which you love so much, oh, well. also expresses a relationship of the human to the cosmos, doesn't it? Well, I think everyone who has spent any time at Chartres has felt something very special about this cathedral. I've been there about eight times. When I was a student in Paris, I went down there about five times and spent one whole weekend and I identified and uh, looked at every single figure in that cathedral. I was there so much that the concierge, this little old fellow who took care of the cathedral, he came to me one noontime and he said, would you like to go up with me and ring the bells? I said, I sure would. So we climbed the flesh, the, the tower, up to where the great bell was, the great enormous bronze bell. And uh, there was a, a little, like a seesaw. And he stood on one end of the seesaw. And I stood on the other end of the seesaw. And there was a little bar there for us to 
hold on to. He gave the thing a push, and then he was on it, and I was on it. We started going up and down, and the wind blowing through our hair up there in the cathedral. And then it began underneath, bong, you know, bong, bong. I tell you, it was one of the most thrilling adventures in my life. And uh, when it was all over, he brought me down. He said, I want to show you where my, my room is. Well, in a cathedral, you, you have the nave, and then the transept, and then the apse. And around the apse is the choir screen. Now, the choir screen in charge is about that wide. And he took me in a little do uh, door into the middle of the choir screen, and there was his little bed and a little table with a lamp on it. And when I looked out, there was the Black Madonna, the vitrine, the window of the Black Madonna, and uh, that was where he lived. Now, there was a man living in a meditation, hmm? a constant meditation. I mean, that, that was a very moving, beautiful thing. Well, I've been there time and time again since. What do you find when you go there? What does it say about all that we've been discussing? Well, the first thing it, it, it says is it takes me back to a time when these principles informed the society. I mean, the, you can tell what's informing the society by the size of the, the, what the building is that's the tallest building in the place. When you approach a medieval town, the cathedral's the tallest thing in the place. When you approach a 17th century city, it's the political palace that's the tallest thing in the place. And when you approach a modern city, it's office buildings and dwellings that are the tallest things in the place. And if you go to Salt Lake City, you'll see the whole thing illustrated right in front of your face. First, the temple was built. The temple was built right in the center of the city. Yeah, I mean, this was a proper organization. That's the spiritual center from which all flows in all directions. And then the capital was built right beside the temple. And it's bigger than the temple. And now the biggest thing is the office building that takes care of the affairs of both the temple and the political building. That's the history of Western civilization from the Gothic through the princely periods of the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries to this economic world that we're in now. In New York now, the debate is over who can build the tallest building, not to praise, but to build the tallest building. Yeah, and they are magnificent. I mean, some of the things that are going up in New York now really are, and this is a kind of architectural triumph. And what it is, is the statement of, of the city. Uh, we are a financial power center, and uh, look what we can do. It's a kind of uh, virtuosic acrobatic stunt. Will new myths come from there? Well, something might. You can't predict what a myth is going to be any more than you can predict what you're going to dream tonight. Myths and dreams come from the same place. They come from uh, realizations of some kind uh, that have to then to find expression in symbolic form. And uh, the myth, the only myth that's going to be worth thinking about uh, in the immediate future is one that's talking about the planet. Not this city, not these people, but the planet and everybody on it. That's my main 
thought for uh, what the future myth is going to be. And what we'll have to deal with will be exactly what all myths have, deal with, have dealt with. The maturation of the individual, the gradual, uh, the pedagogical way to follow from dependency through adulthood to maturity and then to the exit and uh, how to do it. And then how to relate to this society and how to relate this society to the world of nature and the cosmos. That's what the myths have all talked about. That's what, what this one's got to talk about. But the society that it's got to talk about is the society of the planet. And until that gets going, you don't have anything. There's that wonderful photograph you have of the Earth seen from space. Mm. And it's very small, and at the same time, it's very grand. You don't see any divisions there of nations or states or anything of the kind. This might be the symbol, really, for the new mythology to come. That is the country that we are going to be celebrating. And those are the people that we are one with. Okay, that was part one. We're going to listen to episode two, where Bill Moyers continues his interview with Joseph Campbell. Here is part two, and then we'll recap. Bryn and I will recap with you at the end. Why is it, Joseph Campbell wondered, that in almost every culture on earth, you can find stories that tell of virgins giving birth to heroes who die and are resurrected? Osiris, Tammuz, Adonis, Jesus of Nazareth, parallel stories of suffering, sacrifice, and redemption. And why did certain sites take on holy status, one religion following another, on the very same spot, believers coming century after century for healing or for some other blessing from their different gods? The pyramids on the Nile, the ziggurats of Mesopotamia, the Aztec shrines, the cathedrals of Chartres and Notre Dame, all pointing beyond the visible plane of existence. Buried deep in our DNA, Campbell concluded, no matter who we are, is the need to worship, to believe, and the capacity for reverence. Religion, with its symbols and rituals and stories, is the way we mortals try to connect to that unseen world. Raised a Roman Catholic, Campbell's own life experiences made him a maverick in search of the sublime. Over the last two summers of his life, in hours of conversations recorded in the library of Lucasfilm in California, we talked about how mythology can still awaken a sense of awe, gratitude, and even rapture. Why myths? Why should we care about myths? What do they have to do with my life? Well, my first answer would be, well, go on, live your life. It's a good life. You don't need this. Uh, I don't believe in um, being interested in subjects because they're said to be important and interesting. I believe in being caught by it somehow or other. Uh, but you may find that uh, with a proper introduction, this uh, subject will, will catch you. And so uh, what can it do for you when it does catch you? These bits of information from ancient times, which have to do with the themes that have supported man's life, built civilizations, informed religions over the millennia, have to do with deep inner problems, inner mysteries, inner uh, thresholds of passage. And if you don't know 
what the guide signs are along the way, you have to work it out yourself. But once this catches you, there is always such a feeling from one or another of these traditions of information of a deep, rich, life-vivifying sort that you, you want to give it up. So myths are stories of, of the search by men and women through the ages for meaning, for significance, to make life signify, to touch the eternal, to understand the mysterious, to find out who we are. People say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that uh, the life experiences that we have on the purely uh, physical plane will have resonances within that are those of our own innermost being and reality. And uh, so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. Uh, that's what it's all finally about. And that's what these uh, clues help us to find within ourselves. Myths are clues? Myths are clues to the spiritual potentialities of the human life. What we're capable of knowing within? Yes. And experiencing with it. Yes. I, I liked your definition. You changed the definition of a myth from the search for meaning to the experience of, the experience, of meaning. Experience. The experience of life. The experience of life. The mind has to do with meaning. In here, what's the meaning of a flower? That uh, Zen story of the Sermon of the Buddha when his whole company was gathered and he simply lifted a flower. And there was only one man, Kashyapa, who gave him a sign with his eye that he understood what was said. What's the meaning of the universe? What's the meaning of a flea? The, uh, it's just there. That's it. And your own meaning is that you're there. Now, we are so engaged in doing things to achieve purposes of outer value uh, that we forget that the inner value, the, the rapture that is associated with being alive is what it's all about. Now, we want to think about God. God is a thought. God is a name. God is an idea. But its reference is to something that transcends all thinking. The ultimate mystery of being is beyond all categories of thought. My friend Heinrich Simmer of years ago used to say, the best things can't be told because they transcend thought. The second best are misunderstood because those are the thoughts that are supposed to refer to that which can't be thought about, you know? And one gets stuck with the thoughts. The third best are what we talk about, you see? <laughs> and a myth is that field of reference, metaphors referring to what is absolutely transcendent. What can't be known. What can't be known. Or can't be named. Yes. Except in our own feeble attempt to clothe it in language. And the ultimate word in our language for that which uh, is transcendent is God. Do you remember what went through your mind the first time you saw Michelangelo's creation? By the time I uh, became aware of that, my notion of divinity was uh, not quite so personal, you know. The idea of God, that he's a bearded old man of some kind with certain not very pleasant temperament. 
That is, I would say, a sort of materialistic way of talking about the transcendent. There's just the opposite of it. Found uh, on an island in the harbor of Bombay from around the 8th century. This is a wonderful cave. You enter the cave from a, a bright sky. Of course, moving into the darkness, your eyes are blanked out. But if you just keep walking slowly, gradually the eyes adjust, and this enormous thing, it's about 19 feet high and 19 feet across, the central head is the mask of eternity. This is the mask of God. Mask of eternity. That is the metaphor through which eternity is to be experienced as a radiance. And these other two figures? Whenever one moves out of the uh, transcendent, one comes into a field of opposites. These two pairs of opposites come forth as male and female from the two sides. One has eaten of the tree of the knowledge, not only of good and evil, but of male and female, of right and wrong, of this and that, and light and dark. Everything in the field of time is dual, past and future, dead and alive, all this, being and non-being, is, isn't. And what's the significance of them being beside the mask of God, the mask of eternity? What is this sculpture saying to us? The mask represents the middle and the two represent the two opposites. And uh, they always come in pairs and put your mind in the middle. Most of us put our minds on the side of the good against what we think of as evil. It was Heraclitus, I think, who said, for God, all things are good and right and just, but for man, some things are right and others are not. You're in the field of time when you're man. And one of the problems of life is to live in the uh, realization of both terms. That's to say, I know the center, and I know that good and evil are simply temporal apparitions. Well, are some myths more or less true than others? They're true in different senses, do you see? Uh, here's a whole mythology based on the insight that transcends duality. Ours is a mythology that's based on the insight of duality. And so our religion tends to be ethical in its accent. Sin and atonement, right and wrong. Started with a sin, you see. In other words, moving out of the mythological zone, the garden of paradise, where there is no time, and where men and women don't even know that they're different from each other. The, the two are just uh, creatures. And uh, God and man are, are practically the same. He walks in the cool of the evening in the garden where we are. And then they eat the apple, the knowledge of the pairs of opposites. And man and woman then cover their shame. They're different. God and man, they're different. Man and nature is against man. I once heard a wonderful lecture by Daisetsu Suzuki. You remember this wonderful old Zen philosopher who was over here? He, he was in his 90s. He started a lecture in Switzerland that I heard in Ascona. He stood up with his hands on his side and he said, God against man, man against God, man against nature, nature against man, nature against God, God against nature, 
very funny religion. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the other mythologies, one puts oneself in accord with the world. If the world is a mixture of good and evil, you do not put yourself in accord with it. You identify with the good and you fight against the evil. And this is a religious system which belongs to the Near East following Zarathustra's time. It's in the biblical tradition uh, all the way in Christianity and Islam as well. This business of not being with nature. And we speak with a sort of derogation of the nature religions. You see, with that fall in the garden, nature was regarded as corrupt. There's a myth for you that corrupts the whole world for us. Uh, and every spontaneous act is sinful because nature is corrupt and has to be corrected, must not be yielded to. You get a totally different civilization, a totally different way of living, according to your myth as to whether nature is fallen or whether nature is itself uh, a manifestation of divinity and the spirit being the revelation of the divinity that's inherent in nature. But don't you think that Americans, modern Americans, have rejected this idea, this Indian idea, this ancient idea of nature as revealing the divinity because it would have kept us from achieving dominance over nature? Uh, yeah, but that's the biblical condemnation of nature that they inherited from their own religion and brought with them. Uh, the uh, God is not in nature. God is separate from nature, and nature is not God. And this distinction between God and the world is uh, not to be found in, in basic Hinduism or Buddhism either. I'll never forget the experience I had when I was in Japan. To be in a place that never heard of the fall in the Garden of Eden, to be in a place where I can read in one of the Shinto texts, the processes of nature cannot be evil. When every impulse, every natural impulse, is uh, not to be corrected, but to be sublimated, you know, to be beautified. And the glorious interest in the, in the beauty of nature and cooperation with nature and coordination so that in some of those gardens you don't know where nature begins and art ends. This to me was a, a tremendous experience and it's another mythology. Speaking of different mythologies, let's just have a little fun here. I, I, I'll, I took these from your atlas. Oh, I'll, yes. I'll read Genesis. I'll read from Genesis, and then you identify and read from the, from the corresponding oh, text. Oh, yes. Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Now, this is from a legend of the Basari people of West Africa. Unumbote made a human being. Its name was man. Unumbote next made an antelope named antelope. Unumbote made a snake named snake. And Unumbote said to them, the earth has not yet been pounded. You must pound the ground smooth where you are sitting. Unumbote gave them seeds of all kinds and said, go plant these. And Genesis 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And from the Upanishad, then he realized, 
I indeed am this creation, for I have poured it forth for myself. In that way, he became this creation. And verily, he who knows this becomes in this creation a creator. That's the clincher there. When you know this, then you've identified with the creative principle yourself, which is the God power in the world, which means in you. It's beautiful. What do you think we're looking for? When we subscribe to one of these theories of creation, one of these stories of creation, what are we looking for? Well, I think what we're looking for is a way of experiencing the world in which we are living that will open to us the transcendent that informs it and at the same time informs ourselves within it. That's what people want. That's what the soul asks for. You mean we're looking for some accord with the mystery that informs all things, that what you call that vast ground of silence, which we all share? Yes, but not only to, to find it, but to find it actually in our, in our environment, in our world, to recognize it, to have some kind of instruction that will enable us to see the divine presence. In the world and in us. And in India, this wonderful Anjali, this greeting, you know what that means? No. That's the greeting of prayer, isn't it? That's what oh, we yeah. use for prayer. They greet you with that. That's greeting the God that's in you as you come in. These people are aware of the divine presence. When you enter an Indian home as a guest, you are a visiting deity and you feel it by God the way they treat you. Uh, it's, um, it's something in the way of a hospitality that you don't get where you have simply one person and another person. It's a recognition of the identity. But weren't people who told these stories and believed them and acted on them asking far more simple questions, you know, who made the world? How was the world made? Why was the world made? Aren't, aren't these the questions that these creation stories are trying to address? No. Uh, it's through that answer that they see that the Creator is present in the whole world. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, this story that we've just read, uh, I see that I am this creation, says the God. When you see that God says He is the creation and then you are a creature, well, the God is within you and the man you're talking to also. And so there's that realization, two aspects of the one divinity. Accord again, harmony again. Wonderful thing. Yeah. Let me ask you some questions about these common features in these stories, the, the significance of the forbidden fruit. Well, there's this standard folk tale motif called the, the one forbidden thing. Remember in Bluebeard, don't open that closet, you know, and then one always does it. And in the Old Testament story, God gives the one forbidden thing. And he knows very well, I, now, I'm, now I'm interpreting God. <laughs> uh, he knows very well that man's going to uh, eat the forbidden fruit. But it's by doing that that man becomes the initiator of his own life. Life really begins with that. I also find in some of these early stories uh, the human ten tendency to... Uh, find someone to blame. Uh, let, me yeah. read, let me read Genesis 1, then I'll ask you to read uh, one from the Basara legend. Right. Genesis 1, And God said, Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, 
and I ate. I mean, you talk about buck passing, it starts very early. That's right. And then there's the Basari it's legend. It's been tough on serpents, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One day, Snake said, we too should eat these fruits. Why must we go hungry? Antelope said, but we don't know anything about this fruit. Then man and his wife took some of the fruit and ate it. Unumbate came down from the sky and asked, who ate the fruit? They answered, we did. Unumbate asked, who told you that you could eat that fruit? They replied, Snake did. <laughs> it's the same <laughs> Poor story. That's the same what story. What do you make of this? That in all of these stories, the principal actors are pointing to someone else as the initiator of the fall. Yeah, but it turns out to be Snake. And, and, and Snake, in both of these stories, is the symbol of life throwing off the past and uh, continuing to live. Why? The power of life, because the snake sheds its skin, just as the moon sheds its shadow. The snake, in most cultures, is positive. Even the most poisonous thing in India, the cobra, is a sacred animal. And uh, the serpent, the Naga, the serpent king, Nagaraja, is the next thing to the Buddha. Because the serpent represents the power of life in the field of time to throw off death. And the Buddha represents the power of life in the field of eternity to be eternally alive. Now, I saw a, a fantastic thing of a Burmese priestess, a, a snake priestess, who had to bring rain to her people by calling a king cobra from his den and kissing him three times on the nose. There was the cobra, the giver of life, the giver of rain, which is of life, as a divine, positive, not negative figure. The Christian story has turned it around because the serpent was the seducer. Well, what, what that amounts to is a uh, refusal to affirm life. Life is evil in this view. Every Every natural impulse is sinful unless you've been baptized or circumcised in this uh, tradition that we've inherited, for heaven's sakes. By um, having been the tempter, women have paid a great price because in mythology, some of this mythology, they are the ones who led to the downfall. Of course they did. I mean, they represent life. Man doesn't enter life except by woman. And so it is woman who brings us into the world of polarities and a pair of opposites and suffering and all. But I think it's a really childish attitude to say no to life with all its pain, you know? Uh, to say this is something that should not have been. Schopenhauer, in one of his uh, marvelous chapters, I think it's in The World's Well and Idea, says life is something that should not have been. It is, in its very essence uh, and, and character, uh, a terrible thing to consider, this business of living by killing and eating. I mean, it's in sin in terms of all ethical judgments all the time. As Zorba says, uh, you know, trouble, life is trouble. That's it. Only death is no trouble. And when people say to me, you know, do you have uh, optimism about the world, you know, how terrible it is? I said, yes, just say it's great, just the way it is. But doesn't that lead to a rather passive attitude in the face of evil in the face of you wrong. participate in it whatever you do is evil for somebody
But explain that for the audience. I mean, you say yes to that which you... Well, when I was in India, there was a man whose name was Sri Krishna Menon, and his uh, mystical name was Aunt Mananda, and he was in Trivandrum, and I went to Trivandrum. And uh, I had the, the wonderful privilege of sitting face-to-face with him as I'm sitting here with you. And the first, question, the first thing he said to me is, do you have a question? And because uh, the teacher there always answers questions, he doesn't tell you what anything, he answers. And um, I said, yes, I have a question. I said, since in Hindu thinking, all the universe is divine, is a manifestation of divinity itself, how could we say no to anything in the world? How could we say no to brutality? to stupidity, to vulgarity, to uh, thoughtlessness. And he said, for you and me, you must say yes. Well, I had learned from my uh, friends who were students of his that uh, that happened to have been the first question he asked his guru. And we had a wonderful talk for about uh, an hour there on this this theme of the affirmation of the world. And it uh, confirmed me in a feeling I have had that who are we to judge? And it seems to me that uh, this is one of the great teachings of Jesus. Well, I, I see now what you mean in one respect. In, in some classic Christian doctrine, the world is to be despised. Life is to be redeemed in the hereafter. It is heaven where our rewards come. And Mm. if you affirm that which you deplore, as you say, you're affirming the world, which is our our eternity of the moment. That's what I would say. Eternity isn't some later time. Eternity isn't a long time. Eternity has nothing to do with time. Eternity is that dimension of here and now, which thinking in time cuts out. This is it. This, this is, is it. This is my... If, if you don't get it here, you won't get it anywhere. And the experience of eternity right here and now is the function of life. There's a wonderful uh, formula that the Buddhists have uh, for the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva, the one whose being, sattva, is illumination, bodhi, who realizes his identity with eternity and at the same time his participation in time. And the attitude is not to withdraw from the world when you realize how horrible it is, but to realize that this horror is simply the foreground of of a wonder. And uh, come back and participate in it. All life is sorrowful, is the first Buddhist saying, and it is. It wouldn't be life if there were not temporality involved, which is sorrow, loss, loss. Loss. That's a pessimistic note. Well, uh, I mean, you've got to say yes to it and say it's great this way. I mean, this is the way God intended it. The, um, you don't really believe that? But this is the way it is. And I don't believe anybody intended it, but this is the way it is. And uh, Joyce's wonderful line, you know, uh, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. And the way to awake from it is not to be afraid and uh, to recognize as uh, I was did in my conversation with that Hindu guru or teacher that I told you of, that all of this as it is, is as it has to be, and it is a manifestation of the eternal presence in the world. Uh, the, The end of things always is painful. Pain is part of there being a world at all. 
But if one accepted that isn't the ultimate conclusion to say, well, I, I won't try to reform any laws or fight any battles or... I didn't say any, that. Isn't the logical... Couldn't one draw that, though, the philosophy of nihilism? Well, that's not the necessary thing to, to draw. Uh, you could say, I will participate in this row and I will join the army and I will go to war. I'll do the best I can. I, I will participate in the game. It's a wonderful, wonderful opera, uh, except that it hurts. And that wonderful Irish saying, you know, is this a private fight or can anybody get into it? Uh, the, uh, this is the way uh, life is. And the, the hero is the one who can, can participate in it decently, in the way of nature, not in the way of personal rancor, revenge, or anything of the kind. Let me tell you one story here of a samurai warrior, a Japanese warrior, who had the duty to avenge the murder of his overlord. And he actually, after some time, found and cornered the man who had murdered his overlord. And he was about to deal with him with his samurai sword when this man in the corner, in a passion of terror, spat in his face. And the samurai sheathed the sword and walked away. Why did he do that? Why? Because he was made angry. And if he had killed that man, then it would have been a personal act. It was another kind of act. That's not what he had come to do. Let me tell you what happens to me when I read these stories, no matter the culture of their origin. I feel first this sense of wonder at the uh, spectacle of the human imagination simply groping to try to understand this existence. Does that ever happen to you? I tell you, uh, mythology I think of as the uh, homeland of the muses, the inspirers of art, the inspirers of poetry. And to see life as a poem and yourself participating in a poem is what the myth does for you. What do you mean a poem? I mean a, uh, a vocabulary in the form not of words but of acts and uh, adventures, which is uh, con with connotative, which connotes something transcendent of the action here, and which yet informs the whole thing. So that you always feel in accord with the universal being. Well, the interesting thing to me is that far from undermining my faith, your work in mythology has has liberated my faith from the cultural prisons to which it had been sentenced. It liberated my own. I know it's going to do it with everybody who really gets the message. Every mythology, every religion is true in this sense. It is true as metaphorical of the human and cosmic mystery. But when it gets stuck to the metaphor, then you're in trouble. The metaphor being? Well, Jesus ascended to heaven. The story is he ascended bodily to heaven. The story is that his mother, still alive, asleep, ascended to heaven. So this is metaphorical of something. You don't have to throw it away. All you have to find is what it's saying. What do you think it is saying? What it's saying is he didn't go out there. He went in here, which is where you must go too, and, uh, and ascend to heaven through the inward space to that source from which you and all life came. That's the sense of that. But aren't you undermining one of the great cardinal doctrines of the tradition, the classic Christian faith, the death of the burial and the resurrection of Jesus <clears throat> prefiguring 
our own and overcoming the body with a higher physical truth. Well, that would, that would be what I would call the mistaken reading of the symbol. That's reading it in terms of prose instead of in terms of poetry. That's reading it in, that's reading a metaphor in terms of the denotation instead of in terms of the connotation. You, you understand that? It's a purely literary problem. The poetry gets to the unseen reality. That which is beyond even the concept of reality. It's that, that which transcends all thought. It's putting you there all the time. And in some way, giving you a, a line to connect with that mystery which you are. And the myths do it, by gosh, they do it. Now, according to the normal way of thinking about the, uh, the Christian religion, uh, we cannot identify with Jesus. We have to imitate Jesus, but to say, I am God, as Jesus said, is for us uh, blasphemy. Mm-hmm. However, in the Thomas Gospel, Jesus says, he who drinks from my mouth will become as I am, and I shall be he. Wow, that's Buddhism. Mm -hmm. We are all manifestations of Buddha consciousness, only don't know it. And the Buddha, the word means the one who waked up, bud, to wake, woke up to the fact that he was Buddha consciousness. And we are all to do that. To wake up to our Jesus within us, this is blasphemy in the normal way of thinking in Christianity, but it's the very essence of Gnosticism and of the Thomas Gospel. And heaven, that uh, desired goal of most people, is, is within us? Heaven and hell are within us, and all the gods are within us. This is the great realization of the Upanishads of India already in the ninth millennia, ninth century B.C., All the gods, all the heavens, all the worlds are within us. They are uh, magnified dreams. And what dreams are, are manifestations in image form of the energies of the body in conflict with each other. And uh, that's all myth is. Myth is a, uh, a manifestation in uh, symbolic images, metaphorical images of the energies within us moved by the organs of the body in conflict with each other. This organ wants this, this organ wants this. The brain is one of the organs. So when we dream, are we fishing in some vast ocean of mythology that we It goes down and down and down. And you can get all mixed up with complexes, you know, things like that. But you're standing on the the, uh, Lord of the Abyss, really. There's a Polynesian saying that frequently comes to my mind, standing on a whale fishing for minnows. Uh, We are standing on a whale. The ground of being is the ground of our being. And uh, outward turned, we see all these little problems here, but inward, we are the source of them all. That's the big mystical teaching. You've seen what's happened to primitive societies that are unsettled by white man's civilization. They go to pieces, they disintegrate, they succumb to vice and disease. And isn't that the same thing that's been happening to us since our myth began to disappear? Absolutely it is. Isn't that why conservative religious folk today are calling for a return to the old-time religion? That's right. I understand their yearning. In my youth, I had fixed stars. They 
comforted me with their permanence. They gave me a known horizon. They told me that there's a loving, kind, and just uh, father out there looking down on me, ready to receive me, thinking of my concerns all the time. Now science, medicine, has made a, dis a house cleaning of belief. And I wonder what happens to children who don't have that fixed star, that known horizon, those myths to sustain them. All they have to do is read the newspaper. I mean, it's a mess. But what the myth uh, has to provide, I mean, just on this immediate level of life instruction, the pedagogical aspect of myth, it has to give life models. And the models have to be appropriate to the possibilities of the time in which you're living. And our time has changed and it's changed and changed and continues to change so fast that what was proper 50 years ago is not proper today. So the virtues of the past are the vices of today. And the, uh, the many of what were thought to be the vices of the past are the necessities of today. And the, the moral order has to catch up with the moral necessities of actual life in time here and now. And that's what it's not doing. And that's why it's ridiculous to go back to the old time religion. A friend of mine composed a song based on uh, the old-time religion. Give me the old-time religion. Give me, let us worship Zarathustra just the way we used to. I'm a Zarathustra booster. He's good enough for me. Let us worship Aphrodite. She's beautiful but flighty. She doesn't wear a nighty, but she's good enough for me. And uh, when you go back to the old-time religion, you're doing something like that. It belongs to another age, another people, another set of human values, another universe. So the old period of the Old Testament, no one had any idea. The world was a little three-layer cake, and the world consisted of something a few hundred miles around the Near Eastern centers there. No one ever heard of the Aztecs, you know, or the Chinese even. And so those whole peoples were, were not considered even as part of the problem to be dealt with. The world changes then the religion has to be transformed. But it seems to me that is what we are in fact doing. That's We're in fact what we better do. Yeah. But uh, my notion of what uh, the, the real horror today is what you see in Beirut, where you have the three great Western religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and because the three of them have three different names for the same biblical God, they can't get on together. They're stuck with their metaphor and don't realize its reference. So each needs a new myth. It needs its own myth all the way. Love thy enemy, you know? Mm. Open up. Don't judge. Given what you know about human beings, is it conceivable to you that there is a point of wisdom beyond the conflicts of, of truth and illusion by which our lives can be put back together again? That we sure. can develop new models? It's in the religions. All religions are true for their time. If you can find what the truth is and separate it from the temporal inflection, just bring your same old religion into a new set of metaphors, and you've got it. Do you see some new metaphors emerging in the modern medium for the old universal truths that you've talked about, the old story? Well, uh, I think that the, uh, the Star Wars is, is, a, is a valid mythological perspective, and the problem of is the machine and the state is a machine. Is the machine going to crush humanity or serve humanity? And humanity comes not from the machine, but from the heart. Luke, 
Well, the first time anybody made a tool, I mean, taking a, a stone and uh, chipping it so that you can handle it, that's the beginning of a machine. It's turning out of nature into your service. But then there comes a time when uh, it, it, it begins to dictate to you. I'm having a bit of this trouble with my computer, actually. Your computer? <laughs> I just bought one a couple of months ago, and... Uh, I, I can't help thinking of it as having a personality there because it talks back and it, it behaves in a whimsical way and uh, all of that. So I'm, I'm personifying that, that machine. To me, that machine is uh, uh, almost alive. I could mythologize that darn thing. There was a wonderful story about, I think, President Eisenhower uh, when the computer was first being built. You remember that story? Eisenhower uh, went into a room full of computers and... Um, he puts a question to the, these machines, is there a God? And they all start up and there's all those lights flashing and wheels turning and things like that. And after about 10 minutes of that kind of thing, a voice comes forth and the voice says, now there is. <laughs> well, I um, bought this wonderful machine, IBM machine, and it's, it's there. And I'm rather an authority on God, so I identified the God. And it seems to me an Old Testament God with a lot of rules and no mercy. <laughs> you, you, uh, you, it's unforgiving. You catch you picking up sticks on Saturday and you're out, that's all. But isn't it possible to develop toward the computer, the computer you're wrestling with at this very moment? Uh, isn't it possible to develop the same kind of attitude of the Pawnee chieftain? who said that in the legends of his people, all things speak of Tarawa, all things speak of God. It wasn't a special privileged revelation. God is everywhere in his works, including the computers. Well, indeed so. I mean, the miracle of what happens on that screen, you know, with, with the, the, have you ever looked inside one of those things? No. You can't believe it. It's, uh, it's a whole hierarchy of angels, all, all in, on, on slats. And uh, th those little tubes, uh, th those are miracles. Those are miracles. They, they are. One can feel a sense of awe. Well, I've had a revelation for my computer about mythology, though. You buy a certain software, and there's a whole set of signals that lead to the achievement of your aim, you know? And uh, once you've set it for, let's say, DW3, <laughs> Enter, uh, if you begin fooling around with signals that belong to another system, they just won't work, that's all. You, you have a system there, a code, a determined code that requires you to use certain terms. Now, similarly in mythology, each religion is a kind of software that has its own set of signals and will work. They, it, it'll work. But suppose you've chosen this one. 
Now, if a person is really involved in a religion and really building his life on it, it he better stay with the software that he's got. But a chap like myself, who likes to play with the, the various software, I can uh, run around, but I probably will never have an experience comparable to that of a saint. But do you think that the machine is inventing new myths for us, or that we with the machine are inventing new myths? Is the machine becoming... No, the myth has the to incorporate the machine, just as uh, the old myths incorporated the tools that people used. The, uh, the forms of the tools and so forth are associated with, uh, with power systems that are involved in the culture. We have not a mythology that incorporates these. The new powers are being, so to say, uh, surprisingly announced to us by what the machines can do. We can't have a mythology for a long, long time to come. Things are changing too fast. Uh, the environment in which we're living is changing too fast for it to become mythologized. You must realize... Is, how do we live without myths, then? Well, we're doing it. The individual has to find the aspect of myth that has to do with the conduct of his life. There are a number of services that myths serve. Uh, the, the basic one is opening the world to the dimension of mystery. It, if you lose that, you've, you don't have a mythology to realize the mystery that underlies all forms. But then there comes the cosmological aspect of myth, seeing that mystery as manifest through all things. So the universe becomes, as it were, a holy picture. You are always addressed to the transcendent mystery through that. But then there's another function, and that's the sociological one of validating and maintaining a certain society. That is the side of the thing that has taken over in our world. Hey, what do you mean? Ethical laws, the laws of life in the society, all of Yahweh's pages and pages and pages of what kind of clothes to wear, how to behave to each other and all that. You see, in terms of the uh, values of this particular society. But then there's a fourth function of myth, and this is the one that I think today everyone must try to relate to. That's the pedagogical function, how to live a human lifetime under any circumstances. Myth can tell you that. And there's a wonderful story in, uh, in one of the Upanishads, uh, the Brahmavivata Upanishad of uh, Indra, <clears throat> this uh, god who is the counterpart really of Yahweh. He is the god uh, patron of a certain people and of historical life and time with all kinds of rules for people to live by and that sort of thing. And uh, there was a time when a great monster uh, named Vritra had enclosed all the waters of the earth and so there was a drought, a terrible drought, and uh, the world was in very bad condition. Well, it took this uh, god, Indra, quite a while to realize that he had a box of thunderbolts there, and all he had to do was drop a thunderbolt in Vritra, and that would blow him up. And when he did that, of course, he blew Vritra up, and the waters flowed, and the world was refreshed. And he said, what a great boy am I. So thinking, what a great boy am I, <clears throat> he goes up to the cosmic mountain, which is the central mountain of the world, and so he decided he would build a new world up there, a new city, and particularly his palace was going to be a palace worthy of such as he. 
So he calls Vishvakarman, the uh, main carpenter of the gods, and gives him the assignment to build this palace. So Vishvakarman goes to work, and in very quick order, he gets the palace into pretty good condition, and the, uh, Indra comes. But every time Indra arrived, he had bigger ideas about how big and grandiose the palace should be. And finally, Vishvakarman says, my gosh, he says, we're both immortal, and, he's ne and there's no end to his desires. I'm caught for life. So he decided to go to Brahma, known as the creator, and, and complain. Well, now Brahma sits on a lotus. Uh, this is the symbol of divine energy and divine grace. And the lotus grows from the navel of Vishnu, who is the sleeping god whose dream is the universe. So here's Brahma on his lotus, and uh, Vishwakarman comes to the edge of the great lotus pond of the universe, and uh, down he tells his story. Brahma says, you go home. He says, I'll fix this up. So next morning, at the uh, gate of the palace that's being built, uh, there appears a beautiful blue-black boy uh, uh, with a lot of children around him just in admiration of his beauty. So in comes the boy, and Indra on his throne, he's the king god, he says, uh, young man, uh, welcome, and uh, what brings you to my palace? Well, says the boy with a voice like thunder rolling on the horizon, I've been told that you're building such a palace as no Indra before you ever built. And he said, I've uh, surveyed the grounds and looked things over. It seems this is quite true. No Indra before you has ever built such a palace. Well, Indra says, uh, Indra's before me, young man. Uh, what are you talking about? The boy says, Indra's before you? He says, I have seen them come and go, come and go. He said, just think, Vishnu sleeps in the cosmic ocean. The lotus of a universe grows from his navel. On there sits Brahma, the creator. Brahma opens his eyes, a world comes into being. Governed by an Indra, closes his eyes, the world goes out of being. Opens his eyes, the world comes into being. Closes his eyes, and the life of a Brahma is 432,000 years, and he dies. The lotus goes back, another lotus, another Brahma. And then think of the galaxies beyond galaxies in infinite space, each a lotus with the Brahma sitting on it, opening his eyes, closing his eyes with interest. There may be wise men in your court who would Volunteer to count the drops of water in the oceans of the world or the grains of sand on the beaches, but no one would count those Brahmas, let alone those Indras. And while he's talking, there comes in parade across the floor of the palace an army of ants in perfect range. And the boy laughs when he sees them. And Indra's hair goes up and he thinks, he says to the boy, why do you laugh? And the boy says, don't ask unless you are willing to be hurt. And Indra says, I ask, teach. The boy says, former Indra's all. 
through many lifetimes they rise from the lowest condition spiritually to highest illumination. And then they drop their thunderbolt in Vritra and they think, what a good boy am I, and down they go again. And um, then Indra sits there on the throne and he's, he's completely disillusioned, completely shot. And he thinks, oh, let's quit the building of this palace. He calls Vishwakarma and says, you're dismissed. You don't have to. So Vishwakarma got his uh, intention. He's dismissed from the job. And there's no more house building going on. And uh, Indra decides, I'm going out and be a yogi and just meditate on the lotus feet of Vishnu. But he has a beautiful queen named Indrani. And when Indrani hears this, she goes to the priest, to the uh, chaplain of the gods, and she says, now he's got this idea in his head. He's going out to become a yogi. Well, says uh, the Brahmin, uh, come in with me, darling, and we'll sit down and, and I'll fix this up. So he talks to Indra. They come in, they sit down before the king's throne, and he tells him, now, I wrote a book for you some years ago on the art of politics. Uh, you are in the position of the king. You are the position of the king of gods. You are manifestation of the mystery of Brahman in the field of time. This is a high privilege. Appreciate it, honor it, and deal with life as though you were what you really are. And with this set of instructions, Indra gives up his idea of going out and becoming a, a yogi and finds that in life he can represent the eternal in the way of a, a symbol, you might say, of uh, the Brahman and uh, the, the ultimate truth. So each of us is in a way the Indra of his own life. And uh, you can make a choice either to go out and in the forest and meditate and throw it all off, or stay in the world and in the life either of your job, which is the kingly job of the politics and achievement, and as well in the love life with your wife and family, you are realizing the truth. Now, this is a, a very nice myth, it seems to me. Do we ever know the truth? Do we ever find it? Well, each person can have his own depth experience and some conviction of being in touch with his own sat-chit-ananda, his own being, true consciousness and true bliss. But the religious people tell us we really won't experience it till we go to heaven, you know, till you die. I believe in having as much as you can of this experience while you're alive. My bliss is now. And I think in heaven you'll be having such a marvelous time looking at God that you won't get your own experience at all. That's not the place to have it. Here's the place to have the experience. Here and now. Here and now. And we're back, everybody. That was the first two episodes of Bill Moyer's Power of Myth series with Joseph Campbell. And it was incredible to me. That was a great intro into the mind of Joseph Campbell and kind of what he's about, what he's famous for. He touched on so many different topics that really are the foundational concepts that he focuses on through his various lectures and books. Bryn, what did you think about that? That was pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it was awesome. It's very dense. Um, he, he could go on so many different tangents, uh, 
based on any question that Bill Moyers or any interview would ask him, his mind just goes on forever. So it's wild to follow. Yes. Starting with the hero's journey, focusing on that, that's kind of peak Joseph Campbell. You could say that's again, one of his key concepts. He talked about so much. Bill was asking some really good questions. He talked about the many parallels that religions have around the world, the various creation stories, the various hero mythologies around the world. These isolated places seem to have correlative stories, like their stories correlate, even though there's no contact. It just goes to show that in ancient history, Prior to that, it was just all one mythology. Right. And that they all tended to have the same formula for the archetype of a hero, what a hero sets out to do and how they set out to do it. And then also how they're created and, you know, go about their, their life and how they're living for that further purpose beyond themselves. There's a rhythm. There's a rhythm, just like we were saying (laughs) earlier, the rhythm of the shows. There's a rhythm of life. There's a rhythm of the hero's journey that seems to show up. There's just a rhythm of development, how knowledge unfolds in a mythological sense for every culture around the world. Yes. And for how consciousness unfolds. It's really cool that we have these recordings, Bill Moyers. So here's the deal. This is part one and two. There's part three and four. There's part five and six. The next time we do a lecture episode, which I believe will be in probably four weeks or so, whenever that is, then we'll do episodes three and four. And then the next time after that, we'll do episodes five and six, just to get through this power of myth series, because not only is it an introduction into Joseph Campbell and what he brings to that uh, table of knowledge of human knowledge, but it's also just an introduction and a deep dive eventually into world mythology and comparative religions. It's a way to think about things. It's going to help you expand. It's going to help you expand your consciousness until we reach that united mythology that Joseph Campbell talked about. We talk about the new earth and the United earth. Well, he brought it up and he said that when we get there, we'll create a new mythology as we are one uh, mythology for all. Yeah, that was really cool. He touched on a lot of those things um, talking about the, the mythology of the earth as a living being and what that looks like. And also looking at the comparative religions and their views of what eternity is or salvation is. Um, So it'd be really interesting to see his deep dive into that. Um, And when he talks about eternity, I really appreciated how he talked about the current mythology of eternity being somewhere out there, somewhere beyond this life. And then all of the different examples he brought in about experiencing all of that now, not waiting but to experience life and experience eternity and live outside of time, but live in time, all of those different dualities um, being in the middle of it all. The eternity is now the eternity is now. And we're all part of a network of consciousness. And 
We're a network of friends and listeners. That's what Midnight on Earth is. And I want to I thank you. I heard Joseph Campbell say that. He did say that somewhere. And I do want to thank you guys for sticking it out to the end. It was a little bit longer of an episode than normal, even in the lecture sense. Thank you for sticking it out and absorbing what Joseph Campbell was sharing with Bill Moyers and what we all learned together. Bryn, thank you so much for being here again. Uh, kind of last minute, but you were available. Thank you for being here for this first of three parts of deep diving into Joseph Campbell. I appreciate your presence. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that was really enjoyable. I think Bill Moyers is a good interviewer too. He had um, some great ways of weaving what Joseph Campbell was saying together and, and breaking it down a little bit. Yeah, it seemed like they were friends. They had a good rapport. They had a good uh, interface interactions. It seemed really positive. So on that note, just keep it positive. And as you go through your week until our next episode, just hold that positive frequency. Just like Joseph Campbell said in this lecture in part one, you go to these other places, you expand through mythology You step into that cathedral and you hope you can bring it back into this dimension. So let's hold that frequency and keep it going throughout the week until next week when we will see you again. Midnight on Earth. Bye, everybody.